Hello, Health Investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Dr. Sasha High. Dr. High is an internist and obesity medicine physician, mom of three, and entrepreneur. She founded Canada's leading medical and coaching weight loss program for women called Best Weight. She is an international speaker, social media educator, and the host of the High on Life podcast. In the episode, Dr. High explains why obesity is a chronic medical condition, when medications may be the appropriate intervention, why it's important to adopt cognitive behavioral skills on any weight loss journey, and more. If you're liking this podcast, I'd be so grateful if you'd write a review and share it with a friend. Enjoy the episode. Simonson, Certified Nutrition Coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Dr. High. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. Thanks for having me, Brooke. This is great. I was just saying, I think you're my second guest in a row that I've interviewed from Canada. So... I'll have to find another to make it three in a row. It's (laughs) a whole stream of Canadians right now. I love it. Yeah, very exciting. Can you start off by telling us a bit about your background and specifically what led you to specialize in obesity medicine? Yeah, absolutely. So I uh, trained as a physician at the University of Toronto and did uh, specialty in internal medicine and then uh, became interested in how can we improve health earlier on? So as an internist, I worked at the hospital dealt with a lot of chronic disease, dealt with a lot of late stage chronic disease. And um, it became really apparent to me that we needed to intervene earlier and improve people's lifestyles because so many of the chronic diseases that we were seeing were, you know, in large part, um, there's a large contribution from the lifestyle factors. And so that was kind of the initial prompt that got me thinking about, okay, how can we work more on health promotion as opposed to disease treatment. And that led me towards um, the field of obesity medicine. And back when I first started, which was like 2012, I I really thought that it was just eat healthy and exercise more and everything will be solved, (laughs) right? Mm. And I think that that has been like a longstanding misunderstanding and misconception in the medical community and in the, in, you know, culture at large that obesity is fixed by just eating less and exercising more. And that was really what I believed when I first started. And it's really been the evolution of like the last decade of learning more about the physiology of obesity and how much psychology is involved and genetics and so many different factors that it's not a single bullet. And it just, it, it just became really interesting to me. So I think obesity is a really interesting um, medical condition. It's a really interesting field to treat because it's not just one thing. It's not just, here's a prescription for a medication. It's not just lifestyle. It's a combination of treating the whole person. And I really enjoy that. Mm. 
Can you explain why obesity is now seen as a chronic, a chronic medical condition rather than just as you described, you know, probably even some physicians still today still believe this, but I would say even five, 10 years ago is more, you know, it's all lifestyle choices or it's a lack of self-control or laziness, you know, a lot Mm -hmm. of stigma attached to it, but how, why now is it really being lumped into the chronic, uh, disease category? Yeah. Well, when we look at like what what the definition is of, of a disease is and a chronic disease, so chronic meaning it lasts more than one year. Well, we know that for sure. And disease is something that can be affected by genetics and um, affects you know multiple organ systems, um, and and there are different factors that can can result in it. So we know that obesity is a disease that affects numerous organ systems. So lots of complications from obesity from everything from cancer to diabetes to heart disease to early death, right, can be uh, complications of obesity. But we also know that there's a lot of factors that cause a weight disruption inside the body. And that goes beyond just lifestyle factors, right? Lifestyle is important. We should all be aiming to live our healthiest lifestyle. That's why you have this podcast, your program. That's why I do what I do. Absolutely. And we need to recognize that certain people are born with a genetic predisposition to adiposity or having fat on their body and holding onto fat and not their body, just not wanting to let it go. Some people get put on a medication for another medical condition, like a steroid, right? For an inflammatory condition, an autoimmune condition, and that generates increased appetite that generates insulin resistance and that causes them to gain weight. Some people, you know, they develop depression because of a car accident and chronic pain, and then that causes them to gain weight. So there's a lot of different factors, but at the core of it is a brain that has a mismatch in, in the signals of hunger and appetite and, and that weight regulation. And that's within the hypothalamus. And this is, I think the reason that we didn't call it a medical condition for so long is because our understanding of obesity has, you know, has been late to the game, but it's really been, I would say the last probably two decades, but much more so in the last decade that we've really understood the physiology of what's happening in the brain that drives someone to eat more, someone's body to hold on to fat more and not want to let it go. Some people's brains are driven to hyper palatable foods more so than others. So they just have lots of cravings and they're thinking about food all the time. They have no like hunger shut off, right? And in the past, they would internalize that as a failing, right? Like that's a moral failing that I'm hungry all the time and I just think about food all the time. Something must be wrong with me. I must be at fault. And what we now understand is, no, no, it's not, that's nothing to do with your willpower or your character or anything. That's how your physiology drives you. Your Mm. physiology is actually set up that way. And therefore, what can we do about it? Right? So when we understand obesity better from a physiology perspective, we're more equipped to be able to treat it effectively. Mm -hmm. If there are, let's say, two people who are 50 pounds overweight, could somebody have more genetic factors impacting impacting them and fewer lifestyle factors and the other person vice versa? So maybe for somebody, it's easier for them to mm-hmm. lose weight when they make lifestyle changes. And for somebody else, you know, a, medica- a medication is a necessary intervention. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, you can't tell from just looking at a person or how much weight they carry on their body, how they got there or what the factors were. And that's why we call it a very heterogeneous disease, meaning so many different factors come into play, right? So when I'm speaking to a patient, I'm looking at 
what's their history, right? So for example, I'll have patients who'll tell me, I literally came out a nine pound baby and I was overweight since I, I, you know, since I was a toddler, I can look at photos and I can see that I was an overweight child. And then it, it happened from there. Like we look at that person, you say, of course, it's not a willpower issue or a lifestyle choice. Like you don't have lifestyle choices when you're a toddler or a baby, right? Like you are genetically predisposed to having a larger body, carrying adipose tissue. Um, you know, in terms of genetic studies, the, the predisposition is thought to be somewhere in the range of 50 to 70%. So if you have two parents with obesity, your chance at birth, like just by being born of having obesity is about 70%, right? That's how strong the genetic predisposition is. Now, I don't want anyone listening to think, well, then I, I can't do anything about it, right? Because your genetics don't dictate what happens in your life. They just increase risk, right? And they're going to give you a range of what's possible for you, but you still have opportunity within that range. Um, so that would be one example. Another example could be someone who develops, um, binge eating disorder as a result of trauma, right? Maybe they ha have sexual abuse and they have a history of trauma and then they develop binge eating disorder and they gain a significant amount of weight from that, but they don't come from that background, right? Like maybe they were thin as a child. They don't come from a family history of elevated weight or obesity. So, you know, on the outside, we just see someone with extra weight on board, but behind the scenes, we don't know what got to, what got them to that point and what are the like how much of this is physiology how much of this is lifestyle how much of this is psychology and trauma and other things that are coming in and that's why it is a complex disease to treat too because as you can imagine someone with binge eating disorder is not going to require the same treatment as someone who has you know elevated weight from birth we're going to have mm -hmm. to treat those people differently and there's going to be different factors that we need to consider um, to help them really heal when is a weight loss medication the appropriate intervention? Yeah. So there's a lot of discussion right now in, in the media yeah. and social media about um, what I'll call obesity treatments. So, you know, social media calls them weight loss treatments. These really are obesity treatments. They are treatments for a medical condition, right? They're not treatments to achieve an aesthetic. And I just like to kind of differentiate. Of course, we call them weight loss treatments because that's what people are Googling and that's what people connect to, but really we need to understand them as obesity treatments. So when might these be important? Well, I think they can be a consideration for anyone who actually meets the criteria for having a diagnosis of obesity. Right. So obesity is defined by um, having excess adiposity on the body that is impairing your health or function or quality of life. So we're not just talking about body size. We're talking about adipose tissue that's then causing health problems. That's what we call obesity. And so if someone has obesity or elevated weight based on BMI, um, even though we know BMI is flawed, we still use that. But if their BMI is greater than 27 and they have a health complication like fatty liver, type 2 diabetes, sleep apnea, um, lots of different health complications as a result of weight or their BMI is greater than 30. Officially, according to guidelines, that's where we say, okay, you know what? They could, they should be considered for an anti-obesity medication or obesity treatment. Of course, lots of people fall outside of those numbers and still would probably qualify. So there's a lot of people of, for, exa for example, a South Asian background who have a BMI of 25, but they've got diabetes and high blood pressure and high cholesterol, that person has disease related to excess adiposity, and that person would likely benefit from obesity treatment. So I'm kind of giving you like the medical definition. And then there's also the just con the consideration of um, just recognizing like, hey, speak to your doctor about this and decide whether medical treatment 
is appropriate, always weighing the risks and benefits, right? These are long-term medications. They're not quick fixes that you just take for six months until you get to your goal weight and then you stop. These are long-term medications similar to any other chronic disease. And so it really becomes an individual decision based on what's going on in your life, what other medical conditions, what are the complications you're facing, um, and and are you someone who wants to take long-term medication in combination with let's aim for everyone living their healthiest, absolute healthiest lifestyle. Uh Do you feel like most doctors are talking about the long-term piece of it? Because I see so many people who have been on the medications and then they'll say, Oh, I did it for six months and now I'm off of it. And I lost a bunch of weight. I mean, it, it seems like there's a misunderstanding out there of kind of how these are to be used. I don't know if that's coming from the doctors who are prescribing them or people maybe don't understand when they get into it, that it is a long-term medication and they do it for six months. And then they are like, wait, I don't want to be on this forever. What has your experience been with that? I think the misunderstand, like there's so much room for misunderstanding. For example, I say long-term, someone might think six months is long-term. Right, uh, right. right. It's, it's hard for me as a doctor to be like, you're on this forever. Yeah. Right? <laughs> because who knows, who knows what's going to happen forever. Like it's a really long time. Um, I think that what I try to help my patients understand is I want you to think of this like any other chronic medical condition. So if you had heart disease, you would understand that you probably need to be on aspirin for the rest of your life. You probably need to be on your blood pressure pill for the rest of your life. Same idea, right? Uh Obesity is a chronic medical condition, just like heart disease, just like rheumatoid arthritis, just like, you know, a whole host of chronic medical conditions. Um, So whether it's the doctors who are misunderstanding or it's the patients who aren't hearing it, like oftentimes me as a physician, I will say something, but a patient will hear it totally Mm -hmm. differently. Right. Right. I think that's a combination. I think there's physicians who still don't understand, but physicians who do understand explain the right thing, but then the patient doesn't understand. Right. And then there's social media and there's just a lot of mixed up communication with it. For sure. And then in social media, the celebrities who are using it for, you know, the aesthetic purposes and they did it for a few months and then, you know, they have millions of followers. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, they are such a, these new medications are new, you know, so there is still a lot of, misinformation or, uh, myths, you know, swirling out there, but I think it's good for you to clear that up, that they are meant for long-term use, which is probably long-term meaning longer than six months. Yeah. Long-term likely (laughs) means likely means for the rest of your life, you're Uh likely going to require some form of medical treatment for obesity. Now, you know, maybe you start on one medication and then a newer medication comes out and you switch to that. Right. So it's hard to say forever, but the the premise is obesity mm-hmm. is a chronic medical condition that requires chronic treatment. Mm-hmm. So if we just go with that premise, then that kind of, kind of informs the decision-making about medical treatment. And, you know, just this, the whole thing with celebrity culture and how we're so obsessed with Hollywood, and all of this stuff. It's, I think there's pros and cons to it, right? I, I think on the one hand, it's awesome that people are learning about their treatment options and that people who traditionally may have had bias towards themselves of thinking like, no, I did this myself. I just got to get myself out of this. Like I need to diet harder. Now they're learning like, oh, wait, there's medications that could potentially help me. And at least they can have those conversations with her physician to maybe understand a little bit better that there's effective obesity treatment. So there's the positives and then there's the negatives of people thinking that these are, you know, if you take it, this is just you're cheating or you're just trying to achieve a certain aesthetic, right? So there's always pros and cons, but I think it's it's a really interesting time 
that we're living in. And it's an interesting time to be an obesity physician right now because there is so much more awareness. We're understanding the disease better. We're getting new treatments all the time. Like Trizepatide or Manjaro just came to Canada four days ago. So that's kind of exciting. Um, so there's new treatments available and there's more options for patients and we just understand better so we can help our patients more effectively. I want to take a quick break from the episode to tell you about a company I've been impressed by for years. Thrive Market is an online shopping platform that offers thousands of products at 25 to 50% off retail prices. For just $60 a year, you get access to a wide variety of premium pantry staples, supplements, beauty products, and home goods at unbeatable prices. To put things in perspective, I save about $20 to $30 per shipment, which means my annual membership fee pays for itself after just two orders. My favorite part about Thrive Market is that for every paid membership, they donate a membership to a low-income family, veteran, or teacher. So not only do you save money on your purchases, but you also make healthy products accessible to everyone. To read my full Thrive Market review, steal my shopping list of over 150 items, and save additional money on your first order, visit thehealthinvestment.com slash Thrive Market, or just click through the link in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. Right. And from my understanding, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but these medications aren't just this kind of silver bullet quick fix. You still do need to adopt many of the lifestyle adaptations as well. Is that correct? And you mentioned psychology, like working on your mindset, your relationship with food. You know, it's, I don't think many doctors are saying, just take this and this is just going to be the magic pill. It's, you know, and in conjunction with this, let's discuss what you're eating. Could you get more protein, more fiber? Could you get more daily movement? I mean, there, it's not that somebody's just taking this and resting on their laurels, sitting on the couch and losing all the weight they need to lose. It seems like a, a more complicated equation. Yeah. So here's how I like to frame it. Medications treat disease and your lifestyle creates health. Hmm. Right. So you can take a medication and it will treat the disease of obesity. But if you don't actively and intentionally invest, that's why I like the name of your podcast, Mm. invest in your health, um, you won't create your best health in the long term. Right. So if you just continue eating whatever you're eating and you're not aiming for protein and you're not, you know, building muscle through resistance training, you're not implementing these healthy lifestyle measures. Um, the medication will cause you to lose a number on the scale, but you're going to lose some fat and you're going to lose a lot of muscle as well. And in the long term, right? Like we, we tend to be short-sighted, but I like to think of people, what's going to happen five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now. Um, potentially you're in a worse state because you've lost muscle mass, you've lowered your metabolic rate. Now, if you re- happen to regain weight, which tends to happen through life, you've re- regained fat and lost muscle, which is not the position you want to be in, right? So there's nothing that can replace your healthiest lifestyle. And that's, I think the hard, the hard message, right. That the general public, like on a wider scale, hopefully not people listening to your podcast or my podcast, right. Cause we tend to have people who want to invest in their health. But if we look at society at large, there is this like desire for the quick fix, right. And there is the desire to have to skip the hard work, but there is no replacement. There's no medication in the whole world that creates health for you. 
mm-hmm. if you don't do it yourself. So we have to do that. And sometimes we, you know, treat the disease state, right? Treat the disrupted physiology with the medication. But the other thing the medication does is it, it can facilitate the healthier lifestyle, right? So mm-hmm. for example, I mentioned earlier that people with obesity often have this like overdrive in their brain where they're hungry all the time, or they just crave the hyperpalatable foods, like highly processed foods more, right? So those physiologic changes will make you want to overeat and overeat, you know, what we traditionally consider the less healthy options, the processed foods. So if we can have a medication that dials that down in your brain, now all of a sudden it's easier to make the healthier choices because you don't have a brain that's like, you know, I want the sweets or I want the, you know, salty crunchy. Now you're, you can like make the decisions you want to be making with that executive functioning, that front part of your brain that makes great choices because you don't have this like underlying subconscious drive to eat the other things. Mm. That's a, that's a great way to, I haven't heard any doctor say that of the medication treats a disease, but then your lifestyle choices create health. I mean, that's such a good distinction. I think you should, you should write a book all about that. (laughs) There's a title for your book. Yeah. I, I, I honestly think though, that my opinion is rather contra, like it, it, it's, it's not the widespread opinion. And like, that's kind of the sad thing I find is being in this field. There is a huge move to everyone just needs to be on medication and like lifestyle doesn't even matter. And I find that really frustrating. So I share my opinion. I don't know that all doctors share my opinion, but I, I just still am like, I'm just a believer that our lifestyle matters and our health behaviors yeah. matter and honoring our bodies matters. Right. So I just don't <laughs> understand at all how that, what you just said could be controversial, but I'm sure, I mean, I guess everything, you know, you put something out on social media these days and you think you're just saying something completely fine. And then people lose their yeah. minds about it. So yeah, I guess yeah. you never know. Yeah. You think it's benign, but it's not benign. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you literally just said, you know, honor your body and create health through lifestyle choices. I mean, I don't think that's controversial, but apparently it is. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you never know. You never know. In terms of somebody who has obesity, if that person hasn't had any medical issues to date, so they don't have diabetes or not having issues like heart disease, any other kind of the, the other medical issues you mentioned, would you say people with obesity still should try to lose weight to kind of prevent medical issues down the road? Or is it possible to be healthy at every size? Are some people able to carry more weight and still have health throughout their life? This is a tricky one. And I think we don't know the final answer yet. So really the question is, is there a, um, like, is there healthy overweight, right? Mm -hmm. So there can definitely be people whose BMI is elevated. So BMI greater than 30, which is, you know, we, this artificial metric that we use for saying obesity. So obesity is a BMI greater than 30. So there, there can be people with a BMI greater than 30 who, when we check their blood work, everything's normal, right? So clean bill of health, they're not on any other medications, blood pressure is normal, cholesterol, liver enzymes, all that stuff. The question is whether it's, it, it, whether that's going to stay normal. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the part that we don't know for sure yet. Um, there is, I think generally it is thought that that's likely still a risk factor that the metabolic changes, 
happening under the surface may just not have manifested yet. And that the adiposity itself, because we know a lot about adiposity or adipose tissue. So fat tissue is highly inflammatory. It um, it's not benign. It's not just like storage cells that sit on our body. This is active tissue that's an endocrine organ that produces inflammatory cytokines and whole host of processes in the body. So that's happening even if our end stage markers of like, okay, what's your blood sugar doing? What's your cholesterol doing? Um, how's your blood pressure? If those are normal, we still know that the adipose tissue itself is doing some stuff in the body that's not beneficial. And so we don't know for sure. My general, my general opinion, and people can disagree with me, is that likely we're going to see that that manifests at some point in that person's life. And sometimes it's just as simple as carrying the excess weight is hard on your knees. It's hard on your joints, right? You have you can develop um, sleep apnea, right? Like there's there's metabolic problems, there's mechanical problems, there's functional problems. Um, there's just there can be issues just with moving through the world because mm -hmm. our world isn't necessarily made for people in larger bodies. So whether you consider that like a functional impairment, that would meet the criteria for calling it obesity. Mm -hmm. So I know I'm not giving like a firm answer. Um, I think that health at every size is, a. I, I don't think health at every size and the idea of obesity are in conflict actually, because sometimes when we treat obesity, where the person can lose weight and improve their health and still be with a BMI of greater than 30, mm -hmm. right? So if I treat someone with a BMI of 45 and it comes down to 30, we're celebrating. We're like, that is amazing. You've done so well. This is so great. Like, let's maintain this because the goal is not to get them to a BMI of 24. So we can say, oh, great. Okay. Whew. Now you're in the normal range category. Like that's likely never going to happen. Very likely that we'll never achieve a normal, normal BMI. And that's not actually the goal to achieve a normal BMI. So we can treat obesity and still celebrate health at every size. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Like, I don't yeah. think they need to be in conflict. Yeah, it does. And also, you know, what you said about lifestyle factors and things you can do for your health, even if you are currently struggling with obesity, I mean, just going for walks or doing health promoting behaviors in the present day, like as of now, absolutely. Um, you know, yeah. building muscle. It's not that you necessarily have to wait until you hit a certain point. And I think, I think this stems a lot from the younger, the younger generation. You know, I feel, <laughs> I feel old when I say that, but uh, you know, it, people in their twenties who have really pushed like body positivity movement, which I think is great, right? Everybody should be respected no matter what their body size. And they've really made that come to light. But then in that same vein, there's a lot of women, especially in their twenties who have extra weight, who are saying, you know, you can be healthy at any size and you don't necessarily need to release your weight. But then, like you said, maybe your issues haven't presented themselves yet. You know, if you're 22, mm -hmm. your extra weight may present differently then than it does at 52. Yeah. So I think that, I think I, I really celebrate the body positivity movement in the sense of absolutely let's love our bodies at whatever shape and size. Let's love our bodies. Where it falls short is like, let's love our bodies. And because we love our bodies, let's take care of our bodies because we get one, mm -hmm. right? Like I say this to my clients all the time, you get one body mm -hmm. to carry you through this life and it has to carry you through all 90, whatever, how many years you have. So don't you think you want to take care of it and like really honor it and love it as best you can, right? So I think 
if loving our bodies then means like we can, we give ourselves a free pass to like not care and not take care of our bodies, then we've got a problem. But if loving our bodies means we celebrate whatever size and shape and we move it and we fuel it well and we take care of it with really good rest and stress management, all those things, awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I love one of your Instagram reels. You say the weight loss tool more effective than berberine, which you classify, you know, people say is nature's ozempic is cognitive behavioral skills and emotional eating work. What are some of the most effective cognitive behavioral skills someone could adopt for weight loss? Yeah. So let me just define what I mean when I say that. So cognitive cognitions are our thoughts. So cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT is a, it's a psychotherapeutic modality. And essentially the idea is we can't change our behaviors if we don't change the preceding thoughts that got us there. So our thoughts and feelings are why we engage in certain actions. And so often diet culture is just, just follow these rules, just change these behaviors. And we wonder why we don't stick with it. Well, if you have an underlying belief that you're not a priority, your kids are more important than you, it doesn't matter anyway, you can never do this, like you can never lose weight. Those underlying beliefs are going to dictate your behaviors and drive your behaviors and you're going to revert back to old patterns. And so I think a lot of people get stuck in these patterns and they keep trying to change them with the next diet and the next diet and the next diet. And they don't realize the pattern stems from your belief system, your thoughts, how you think about yourself, your weight loss, your body, all of that, the scale and um, your ability to process and regulate your emotions because we also eat because we're stressed and we're sad and we're bored and we're trying to create entertainment. So um, I use cognitive behavioral tools to help people. So I'll give you an example of a cognitive behavioral tool. Well, one really common um, like cognitive distortion or um, a problem for a lot of people is all or nothing thinking. Mm-hmm. All or nothing thinking is very much diet culture of like, you have to be on this plan and you have to get it right. And if you don't, like you're not going to lose weight, right? So people start the diet and they're perfect and they have to do everything perfectly. And that lasts like all of a day. And then, and then they fall off their diet and they're like, oh, well, I might as well keep eating now because it's like Thursday and I'm going to the weekend and I might as well just start over on Monday, right? Yeah. And so that creates that all or nothing. I'm on again, off again. Well, that we have to destroy that, right? So we have to get to this point where we can just do B plus consistent effort. And sometimes that means you're not going to be perfectly on plan, but how do you recover quickly? So I teach a tool and it's called just next best choice. Mm. Next best choice can apply in the minute. If you've like overeaten, you binged, you totally went off the rails right now. How can you apply your next best choice? If we can always do that, we're always recovering quickly. And it's really working at combating that all or nothing thinking. So that'd be an example. Um, Another one might be really doing some work around reframing your beliefs about your body, your beliefs about the scale, what it means about you. A lot of people have like deeply ingrained beliefs about their worth as a result of their bodies, or maybe as a child, you know, their mother really imprinted on them that they need to lose weight, that they would be more beautiful if they lost weight. Right. And that, if you kind of continue carrying those beliefs with you, with you, it's going to show up in how you treat yourself and how you behave. And really, Mm -hmm. and these are, types of beliefs that tend to cause us to engage in actions that actually make us go further from the people that we want to be. So that's called an away move. So at every, it's the idea is like, we can either make towards moves, moving towards our goals and values, or we can make away moves, moving away from our goals and values and who we want to be. So how do we make more towards moves while we deal with the emotions, the thoughts, the limiting beliefs um, that kind of tend to 
pull us away from who we want to be. So those are some of those tools. And then for emotional eating, it's really learning how to make space for all of our emotions. Mm-hmm. And that's a challenging tool for most adults because it's not something we learn in school, right? When what we learn is don't cry, right? Like don't be a crybaby, right? We learn that emotions are bad. It's bad to feel sad. It's bad to feel angry. Like don't be angry. You shouldn't behave that way. So we learn that these are negative emotions that are really bad and we try to escape them. We do a lot of things to try to escape them. We veg out on Netflix. We screen, we, we scroll through social media. We buy stuff online. We overeat, we overdrink, we use drugs, right? These are all strategies to try to distract from our emotions when really what we need to do is we need to learn how to make space for those emotions, recognizing that all of them are normal And that when we make space for them, we learn how to just move through them and allow unpleasant emotions to come and go just like ever like that. And that's just part of the human experience. So there's a whole lot of tools for how to do that. A lot of them come from dialectical behavioral therapy or DBT, which is another psychotherapeutic modality. Um, But I think those are the missing pieces for a lot of people. Mm hmm. Outside of hosting this podcast, I work as a nutrition coach specializing in evidence-based sustainable weight loss. If you're ready to stop yo-yo dieting and start living a healthy, active lifestyle you're proud of, I'd love to work with you in one of my programs. Unlike restrictive, one-size-fits-all diets that only provide short-term results, I help you adopt science-backed nutrition and lifestyle habits that work for your unique likes, dislikes, and time constraints so you can lose weight permanently, have high energy throughout the day, feel completely in control of cravings, and stay consistent long-term. To learn more, visit thehealthinvestment.com or follow me on Instagram and TikTok at The Health Investment. I have a client who's working on just kind of sitting with emotions and we were talking about how it's going to be uncomfortable. And it was so interesting. Yeah. She said on a call yesterday, she said, I've realized I'm either going to feel uncomfortable now yep. sitting with the emotion or later after I've overeaten yeah, because so of the emotion. So she's like, I'd rather just feel uncomfortable now and get it out of the way. And not feel uncomfortable later. She's like, at some point, I'm gonna have to feel uncomfortable. I was good like, wow, yeah. isn't that awareness. such a such good awareness? I was like, that oh, is yeah. that is brilliant. That is yeah. I'm like writing it down as she's saying it. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you too, like learned so much uh, from your patients and clients. Yeah. Your- coaching. You also have mentioned the importance of resilience on a weight loss journey. And this is a topic I love. Can you describe why resilience is so important and how somebody can work on building better resilience? Yeah. So for me, resilience is just the ability to overcome the setbacks that are bound to happen because you're human and imperfect. Right. And I think we, unfortunately, for some reason, we enter in believing that like the scale is just going to keep going down every single week. And I'm just going to stay on my plan. And once I learn this, I'm going to do it forever. It's like, in no world is that realistic, right? Um, Because life happens, stress happens, job loss happens, death in the family happens, all these things happen that, um, are opportunities for setbacks, right? And setbacks can be that you lo- you gain weight instead of losing weight one week, or you, you know, eat off your plan, or you have a week where you eat off your plan, or you don't go to the gym, right? So these are all what we would define as setbacks. But resilience is how can you just learn from that setback, uh, take it as an opportunity to grow and like evaluate, okay, what happened? What set me up? What were the risk factors? What could I take from this to move forward? 
And if we can do that, then we're always learning and we're always moving forward and we're recognizing our humanity in this, right? With a lot of self-compassion. I love that. Yeah. I think it's also interesting how sometimes the perception, talking about thoughts and feelings, sometimes the thought or feeling is that you're the only one with these setbacks and it's just easy for everybody else. Yeah, I had a client once on a call, on a group call say, well, you wouldn't understand because, you know, I, I live with my husband. He's, you know, trying to go out to eat or order takeout or, and I'm, I'm not wanting to do that. And, you know, you kind of wouldn't understand what that's like. And I said, no, wait, no, what? Like <laughs> I have a husband. I live with somebody else too. And sometimes we have different opinions about, should we get takeout tonight? Or should we eat at home? Or what restaurant should we go to? You know, we all have these challenges in life of living with other people, or like you said, loss of job or tough weeks emotionally or with family. I mean, there's always, always stuff that's going to go on. And then if you wait for that perfect time, I've said to clients before, like, if you were to name how many weeks in a year are actually kind of perfect time weeks where everything's (laughs) going smoothly, how many would you actually think there are? They're like, Oh, that's such a good point. Maybe like six. (laughs) It's like, yeah. Yeah. So if you, if you wait to do this until the perfect time, you're going to do it for six out of 52 weeks. So that's not that's not going to add up to yeah. the success you're looking for, you know? So yeah. you got to, you got to do it when you got to figure out a realistic, flexible plan that works when life is crazy because exactly. most of the time life is crazy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and a lot of times too, clients will be like, Oh, you know, this is a, a busy week with work and I'll say, okay. And then the next call, this is a really busy week with work. And then the next call, it's like this week, you wouldn't even believe it. And then we'll yeah. step back and say, you know what? It actually just seems like the norm yeah. is your work is very busy. And they'll say, you know, that's, that's a good point. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> it's not helpful to just wait for work to slow down because chances are it won't. It's probably yeah. not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. One of the final questions I ask each of my guests is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? Yeah, I love the title of your podcast because I think the reality is that all of us, you know, I'm an obesity physician, but all of us, regardless of if you have obesity or not, normal body weight, you know, young, old, we all need to be intentional about prioritizing our health. And the reason is we live in an environment that goes completely contrary to health promotion, right? So we live in an obesogenic environment where we're sedentary, we can order Uber Eats to our house, hyperpalatable foods are everywhere and often cheaper than the healthy foods. And so by default, our tendency is to eat more, exercise less, and have declining health, right? So the health investment is, hey, I'm not going to leave this as something that I think about when I retire and I'm just going to prioritize like my career right now, my money, status, accomplishment, and ignore my health. It's really, I think we need to recognize it is the, the most important investment that we can make that has the greatest return, mm-hmm. right, is your health. Because I don't care how much money you have in the world. If you're not healthy, you can't even enjoy it, right? Um, or, you know, status or whatever, you know, whatever these things that we tend to look towards as like, oh yeah, you've really made it in life. If you don't have your health, it is the one domain of life that affects every other domain. Mm-hmm. And so I think to make the health investment is to give the time, the attention, the finances, whatever that looks like to say, hey, my health matters, my body matters, 
how am I going to keep this at the forefront? Doesn't have to be perfect. Doesn't have to like be the ideal, but I just need to continue to always make this a priority in my life. And like you said earlier, I mean, if you really stop to think about it, you go down this rabbit hole of, I mean, if you have one body, yeah. I mean, it's kind of crazy, but you, you can get a new house, you can get a new car. Exactly. You have just this one vessel. Yeah. And we treat often our possessions better than we treat yeah. this one vessel we've been given for life. I mean, yeah. look at how people treat an expensive car, right? It's like yeah. often better than yeah. maybe how they're treating their body, but Absolutely. when it should be the reverse. Yeah. So interesting. Where can listeners follow and find you? So I'm at Sasha High, H-I-G-H-M-D on all social media platforms. So I'm on TikTok, YouTube, and Instagram. I hang out on Instagram the most. And then my podcast is called the High on Life podcast, and it's available on all streaming platforms. And my website is www.sashahighmd.com. Awesome. I love your podcast name also. That's great. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it works well. <laughs> it works well with my last name. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, you've got a great last name. you got to use it, you know? It's yeah. <laughs> use it to your advantage. Awesome. Well, I will link all of those places in the show notes so e- people can easily click through and find you. And I loved this conversation so much. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us and your wisdom and your knowledge. And I learned a lot. I know my audience did as well. And we all look forward to staying connected with you off air. Awesome. Thanks so much, Brooke. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.